Listen up, real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and agents. You're in the right place. Unlocking the secrets to real estate investing and entrepreneurship. Welcome to the Titanium Vault, hosted by RJ Bates III. Here's RJ. Hey guys, welcome to the Titanium Vault. I'm your host, RJ Bates. Today I'm sitting down with Jim Mafuccio. How you doing, buddy? Doing great, RJ. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you. I appreciate you taking the time uh, to sit down with us and share your wisdom of over 30 years of being in real estate. Uh, you know, I I get these these one pagers sent over by by your people, and I was looking over it, and you know, I'm always honored when I have a guest with with quite the experience that you have. Uh, looks like, you know, your, your journey started way back when you were doing development. Uh, can you kind of touch base on that a little bit before we dive into what it is that you're doing and what that experience was like going through the recession back in 08? Yeah, sure. I, I, I'd be, I'd be happy to relive those terrible times. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually I, I got my start, uh, I actually graduated from Louisiana State University, go Tigers. Yeah, in, 19, in 1979, uh, as a civil engineer, and I went to work for a large corporation, an oil company, and uh, you know, I was an engineer in the corporate world for six years. So uh, really quickly, I realized that's not that wasn't my my uh, that's not my destiny. So I got my real estate license in '86 and ended up hooking up with a uh, a friend slash partner, and we started a small development company in '87 ish. And uh, we, we you know, we were took off like a rocket ship. We were doing these small residential developments in Ventura County in California and had just having a blast. And uh, and we came all the way around to the early 90s and the first uh, crisis hit me. And that was uh, basically due to the to the SNL crisis. And I don't know if maybe some of your listeners might remember that, but the savings and loan crisis. So it was a mortgage related. There's a reason I'm highlighting this. It was a mortgage related uh, crash, I would say, in the market. Right. And we ended up with uh, an award-winning project, actually a, a Gold Nugget award-winning project that uh, was the most uh, successful failure I've ever had. So <laughs> I'll leave it at that. But we ended up losing the last part of the project and uh, to foreclosure and found myself starting over from scratch in the uh, late 90s. And kind of got going with doing some loan origination and then moved back into development. And I hadn't had enough of it, I guess. So built things back up to where 2006, I had, you know, all kinds of land tied up and projects underway. And I was really focused on affordable housing too, because I saw that, you know, things were getting out of hand with, with the pricing bubble. And, uh, but that market crashed so fast and so deep and so long that you know nothing could breathe underwater that long so you know many people have their war stories from the from the you know the subprime crisis another mortgage related real estate debacle and so that one that one landed me bottom line landed me broke uh less than broke owing money at 55 years old five teenagers under roof included including two internationally adopted daughters and Found myself in Kansas City with no investors, no development projects, no money, <laughs> but a lot of experience and uh, in the real estate world. So um, I flipped houses, did whatever I could do to uh, you know put put food on the table, 
and for a couple of years struggled around with that. And I really studied, I, you know, I always, when I, when there's crisis, I'm always looking for opportunity. I think that's what an entrepreneur just does, you know? Right. So I started looking at uh, where do I get back into this thing and, and, and get back on top? And I didn't want to do the development thing again. And it wasn't a good market for that anyway. So in 2010, I went to a conference in Denver, actually. Um, and it was on it was on buying distressed mortgages and a whole lot of things kicked in for me. Uh, I'd kind of been around this world long enough to realize that there are there is the buying and selling of mortgages. I had kind of understood I actually bought some distressed properties from outfits that had acquired the property by becoming the lender, by buying the distressed paper. So, um, you know, I jumped in with both feet in 2011. I just basically retooled all my thinking towards being the lender and not the borrower. And um, I ended up uh, jumping specifically into the junior lien space. This is a second mortgage, typically behind a first mortgage that's performing. And it's a beautiful model. It doesn't, it, it, at first people hear it and they go, what? You're buying defaulted second mortgages? What can you right. do with those? And, and so here I am, uh, you know, nine years later and have been exclusively working second mortgages. And I actually hooked up with a business partner in 2012 who was looking for his next gig. And he had built a big tech company in the 90s and he's good at scaling uh, business and, and all of the, the the CFO type functions, you know, raising the money, investor relations, all the stuff that frankly, I mean, I can do it, but I'm not great at it. It's not my it's not my sweet spot. So we started Aspen Funds in 2012, and uh, really we did an experimental fund. It was just going to be a one shot deal, and he raised a few million dollars. We went out and bought a boatload of these loans, and I started. I was doing the workouts myself through a servicer. And we were hitting home runs. I mean, we we're, we're to this day, we've bought thousands of these things now. And um, if we spend a million dollars in purchase price, we are going to generate two and a half million dollars in revenue. It's just, it's wow. almost, I can't say guaranteed, but we've been doing it so long. We know our numbers pretty well. So um, that's what we do. We buy distressed, non-performing second mortgages, and we have a whole workout operation in-house. We have 21 employees now, including... Two of my sons working for us full time. My partner's oldest son working for him, working for us full time. And uh, we have our headquartered office in Overland Park, Kansas, in the Kansas City market. And we have a workout office in Maryland. And, and then I work remotely out of my home here in Colorado. So we've been having a blast, just killing it on the, on the workout side. And we also started an income side of our uh, business, which is buying, reperforming, or cash flowing notes. And then basically just making a spread, paying our investors well, a really nice preferred return. And and then, uh, you know, we end up with a lot of defaults on that, on that side too, but we, we know how to work those out. So it's been a really a, a sweet thing. So we've been in scale mode here for the last few years. We've been doubling, like doubling every 12 months, it seems like lately. So that's amazing. So I, I definitely want to jump into the the second, the junior lean position and, and what that looks like and, and how you're successful with that, because that's a, a very unique topic to talk about. But I want to go back to, you know, you're you're doing developments. You've gone through a couple of recessions. You know, you were talking about you were you're more broke than broke. You <laughs> know, for for someone that goes through that and, and these are tough times right now. I, I think there's quite a few people that are are struggling right now, you know. And so let's talk about that a little bit mentally on the mindset side of things. How did you overcome the failure? I mean, because 
look, it's easy for, for us to sit here with a microphone and a camera in front of us and say, look, just fail forward, you know, it, right. but how do you actually overcome that when you have to go through a foreclosure or shutting down a business? How did you overcome that mentally? Well, I'll, I'll give you two, two sides of it because I'll, I'll give you the secular and the, and the sacred. Uh, for me personally, the core of my life is my faith in God. If I didn't have that, uh, I don't know how I would do and make it through a lot of the things that I've made it through. Uh, that's that's ground zero for me. That's true north. And so uh, with that, I, I just don't I, I just I don't have a lot of fear in my life. I just it's just not in my faith and fear don't coexist in the same in the same human being. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a person of faith. I mean, I really work on my faith. I really spend a lot of time in scripture and in prayer. And so that that's it's just like working out, you know, everything for the last couple of decades is about building your core. So I think as human beings, it's not just in the physical realm, but, it, you know, we, we have a spirit. And if we work on our core, the rest of life just seems to flow more freely from that place. So that's number one. Uh, but then also as an entrepreneur and as a, a person who, you know, like I say, since 1986, I've been I've not gotten a paycheck from somebody else since 1986. So beautiful years. And I think you discover some things about yourself and about how really how life works on the planet, you know, and it's really not rocket science. You know, there's a there's a problem and, you know, the, the world, the, the universe will pay you well to solve a problem. Obviously, you have to have a decent business plan, but I mean, there's mentors, there's models there. I've never really been a I mean, people call me a pioneer. I, I don't think I'm really a, a pioneer as much as I'm I'm the world's best and fastest copycat. You know, I you know, I find something that, that works that someone else has maybe been the pioneer and invented. And I say makes perfect sense to me. I don't mind being the second guy to the market with that. thing. You know? Right. So uh, so really understanding the mechanics of what makes a successful business and once really, <clears throat> excuse me, failing a couple of times really kind of teaches you to, if you look at the, if you look at the failure redemptively, like, okay, the reason this fell apart was, you know, and you, and you sit down with a piece of paper and you write it out. Some of the things are outside of our control. I can't control the timing of the real estate market in Southern California, which everybody knows has big ups and big downs. Yep. And so when you're doing development projects, you, you don't know how long it's going to take to get a project approved. So if it takes four years and you were counting on two years, well, what's the market going to look like four years from now? You have no idea. Right. So I look at that from a business perspective and say, that's a really bad model for us, for a small guy who depends on debt financing. OK, if I'm a if I'm KB Homes and I've got, you know, a lot of liquidity and, and I'm a publicly traded company. I mean, it's kind of a no brainer. Eventually. You, you mothball some stuff, you hang on, and you're going to make it back out the other side. But when you when you depend on debt, your timing has to be right. So, I mean, you learn that. And then what I've learned is, you know, debt has kind of hammered me twice, the, the debt equation. And uh, I kind of had a little epiphany in 2010, 11, that time frame. And I saw, I mean, I, I, I didn't hear an audible voice, but internally, here's what I heard. The wall, that, the wall that's standing before you that caused your ruin if you get over on the other side of it, it'll be the very thing that brings your recovery. And I mean, that I knew in my in my deepest part of my being, I knew what that translated into in the real world. That was like, oh, shoot, I need to be on the lender side of the equation and not the borrower side. And then I started thinking, you know, 
And you hear this kind of talk at, at the conferences I go to where there's other note buyers. You know, you, when you drive through a town, you don't see the name of rehabbers up on the tallest buildings, right? <laughs> Maybe you'll see some development companies and construction companies. But for the most part, what are, what, are, what are the marquees on the tops of the buildings? They're banks. Right. There's a, there's a clue there. You know, banks don't lose. You know, I mean, we, banks have some failures, obviously. And we love it when banks, <laughs> I don't say I want I to say I love it when banks fail, but, you know, we can come in and do some things entrepreneurially that an, a regulated institution cannot do or, or will not do or they don't have the skill set to do. Right. So it, create, it created this opportunity that I thought, in 2010, 11, I thought I was looking at a two to three year run where all these distressed notes that, that flooded the market in that time frame would get healed up, would get worked out. And then we, I, I'm an opportunist. I'd jump out and get into something else. And, you know, here we are eight years down the road and the opportunities have only gotten bigger for us because of the relational infrastructure that we built. It's a very much of a tight knit in the seconds world, especially it's a very tight knit, relationally driven business. And so, I mean, we, I, I could buy more, I could buy more stuff right now than I have capital for. And we've been in crazy capital raising mode. So it's worked out really well for us. I love it, man. And, and for everyone that's listening, Jim basically just gave my sales pitch to an owner when I asked them to sell a finance a property to me. Uh, the, the, the whole topic about, you know, you see the bank names and the lenders' names on top of the the big the, the big buildings in downtown. Uh, that's literally what I you know I, I basically sum it up that way, and I tell them like, hey, the 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 people that make the most money are always the lenders. Don't you want to become a lender? You're in a position to do that, and yeah. so that's a beautiful topic. But uh, let, let's move into this junior lien and and you you buying second position notes because. Uh, you, you know, like I said, that's that's a very unique strategy, yeah. and and you know sometimes as as a, a rehabber or or just an investor as a whole, when I try to go raise money, and I ask someone to go into second position, they're kind of like a little bit skittish, not sure. You know, if you do default, that basically means I'm in a tough position. You know, I might not be able to recoup my money and, or I'll have to take over the project. So let's talk about from a very elementary level and then we'll dive into more granular. What does okay. this mean? And, and, and who are you going after? Like, who is this in those second positions? Okay. Very awesome questions. And I'll, I'll give like three main uh, bullet points here and then you can, we can develop whichever ones you want. But first of all, let me say this institutions that create or originate second mortgages will not foreclose from second. They, they, they basically charge this paper off. It's almost treated like consumer debt. It's not treated like long-term amortizing senior liens, uh, which, which have been trading forever. I mean, there's always been a secondary market for, for those, for those loans, as well as for, for second loans, for HELOCs and seconds. But here's the thing, if it, if it goes into default with an institution, typically after 90 days, they charge it off. It goes in the underwear drawer, you know, it's just, it's, it's still a lien on the property. And, but it's a, it's a note that the institution isn't trying to collect anymore. So they end up selling those along with, you know, the firsts that are, that are in default, maybe commercial loans. And they end up going through typically these very large hedge funds that buy billions of dollars worth of distressed assets. And they typically either don't know what to do with seconds 
or they just don't want to go through the brain damage because it's a small, they're typically small loans. Our average purchase price for a second mortgage is about between twelve dollars and $15,000. And the average balance of that loan would be in the $50,000 range. Okay, this is, these are small potatoes, but check it out. If I buy a loan for $12,000 and I can work our magic through our team and turn that into an, a performing asset that maybe isn't worth 50, but maybe it's worth 36. And these are real numbers. It's worth 36,000 as a reperforming loan. I've just tripled my money, the value of my, of my capital, right? And I've created a cash flowing asset. So, so number one is we can buy these at, at significant discounts, these second mortgages, because they right. really are trash to the institutions. They're treasure to us. The, so the, the second part of that is who, who's, whose mortgages are these? Well, just to give you an example, I was on the uh, conference call with an institutional investor yesterday that's going to be investing in one of our funds. And um, we, you know, the average fair market value, and this is across the country, we have, we have assets and I think we're in 38 states right now. Um, and it's easy to manage because of the infrastructure that's out there, by the way. But the average fair market value of the underlying home is $250,000. We have some million dollar properties in there and we have some $100,000. But these are basically Americana, bread and butter. Uh, they're not typically uh, inner city. House. I mean, you can find seconds on those, but typically those weren't really your HELOC markets. But they're, it's typically suburbia. And uh, frankly, and it's just boring everyday places where Americans live. And, you know, they've been paying on their first, but, the, but whoever was collecting on the second stopped, stopped making calls. And so when, when they hear from us, it, it may have been seven years since they've heard anything about this mortgage. So one of our big challenges wow. is we have to wake them up and make them realize you really do still owe this plus a whole bunch. We really do have a lien on your property. And then the other main point I wanted to make is there's a fallacy out there that, uh, or a misunderstanding that you can't foreclose from second position and you absolutely can. And the second part of the fallacy is if you foreclose from second position, you have to pay off the first, right? And I say, no, wrong. And in, in, in most cases, most every state allows the, um, a junior lien holder to cure or, or to reinstate the first. So you, we actually have situations where we own a property, we've gone through foreclosure, we've taken the property back from second position, and guess what? We have sub two financing. We, right. we have a property subject to the existing first. Now, I wanna say this real, real clearly, we are not in business to take people's homes or to foreclose. We have to start foreclosure a lot of time, but less than 2% of the time do we actually end up going all the way through. And then by the time we get there, in a lot of cases, it's actually friendly. Like the, the borrowers actually said, look, you know, I, I would just give you the keys and, and give you a deed in lieu, but there's all kinds of other liens and stuff behind you. So we have to go through the process to cure title and, and foreclose. So, so we're, not, we're, not after, we're not after acquiring properties. There are people in our space that use this as an acquisition strategy to buy properties. I'm, whatever, I'm not gonna judge somebody else there. Right. But that's not really our game. We've been really successful 65, 75% of the time to keep people in their home with an affordable payment structure uh, or a settlement, a discounted settlement. It's amazing where people can find money when they can take a $100,000 debt and for $35,000 wipe it off their life. And hey, guess what? We bought it for 7,000, we made a 5X and they eliminated 70,000 in debt and they, they think we're heroes and our investors think we're heroes and 
we kind of are heroes. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, uh, let, let's break this down because, you know, to someone that's listening to this and maybe this is something that they want to look into in the future or even partner up with you because it looks like that's that's a possibility and maybe we'll touch base on that here towards the end. You're taking basically, let's just use the HELOC example, okay? So they've tapped into their equity, they pulled it out and now they can't pay it anymore. The, the, you know, the bank's essentially written this off. You're buying it for pennies. Right. How do you turn that into performing at that point in time? You're reaching out to these people and saying, hey, you really do own it or owe it. And, and at this point in time, are you discounting it to them to get them to start making payments to you? Or, or how does that conversation start off? Well, there's, there's a whole process. And so I'll kind of I'll kind of walk you through the high level. First of all, when we buy these loans, we, you know, we, we board them with a servicer, a loan servicer. Uh, everybody on the, on the call probably knows this, but, you know, when you write your check or, or your ACH payment goes to your mortgage lender, it's not going to your lender. It's not going to the investor. It's going to a servicer. Right. So, you know, the, the, the name that's on your, you know, on your bank and your mortgage statement, that's, that's a servicer's name. And so we use a licensed servicer, several of them actually, that are that are that are licensed nationally, and uh, they do all the document. They they will they will send the borrower once we buy the loan and board it with our servicer. They will send the borrower the regulatory required letters, you know, uh, transfer of servicing notices. So they're now the borrower is hearing probably for the first time in a long time. They're getting this letter and this set of documents from our servicer stating, hey, you know, your loan has been sold and has been is now serviced with us. Here's how much you're, you know, you owe. When can we expect your payment? Here, if you want to pay online, blah blah blah. So that's the first thing the borrower hears. Secondly, we have an in-house team that are made up of uh, seasoned bank veterans that are super compliance-minded. Uh, we have gone through the process of getting licensing, and basically now we're licensed in every state because we've just been taken under the wing of a, a, a national bank. That's uh, that we, we they have their bank charter. And so we're, they're the trustee of our we hold our we hold all of our assets in a trust. That's getting a little bit into the weeds. I'm only saying this because it's I just want to be perfectly honest. It's not a great mom and pop business. You can do it. And if you do it on a small scale, there's some there's some states you want to avoid. Uh, and you'll find all this out once you start digging into the notes world. But uh, it's a highly regulated space, you know, the consumer. The consumer is God in this in this culture, you know, and, you know, it's amazing. People make a promise to pay and then they break the promise. And all of a sudden they're talking about you can't take my home. It's like, well, you know, do you really understand that it's really not your home? But if you're right. in a, like if you're in a trustee state, you, you act, your property is actually in a trust and you're being trusted to fulfill your end of the contract, which is make the payments. Then you get the pink slip like like a car right at the end of the day. But anyway, it's highly regulated. It's very consumer uh, focused because that's what keeps our, our world going around is the debt financing structure. So we're okay with it. You know, we work with it. But anyway, so we have a team that, that reaches out. We send a welcome package to them, which is, shows a copy of their note, a copy of the assignment of the mortgage to our company. So we're, you know, we're, we're, we're eliminating that question right up front. Like, look, we really right. own your loan. And, uh, you know, we, we have some options for you. We have alternatives, but we need to, we need to engage. Our goal, uh, RJ, is to engage a meaningful dialogue 
with the borrower sooner rather than later. I'd love to tell you that from sending out initial letters, you know, a high percentage of borrowers just call us back and are just so excited to hear from us. The fact of the matter is it's a pretty low percentage. We usually have to then send an attorney default letter. If they don't respond to that, we have to file the first foreclosure step, which is, you know, a notice of default in, in trustee states and a, and, a, and a complaint in a judicial foreclosure state. That usually wakes up a whole other waterfall batch of, of borrowers. And then some of them honestly don't come to the table until a week before the foreclosure sale. It blows me away. And it's like, you're not going to take my house. All right. You've been getting notices for you know a year and a half, you know? So right. what do you want to do? Well, we want to work something out. Well, you know, it would have really been great if you told us that because now we have all these legal fees and advances and blah, blah, blah. But that's kind of our process. We we start moving the the, the train down the tracks toward the ultimate end, which would be perfecting our collateral, which is foreclosure. But I'm telling you, we only get there, you know, like one and a half percent of the time because usually by then they've either said, yeah, yeah, we owe it. We know. Let's figure something out. And then we do a full underwriting. We do a financial intake on them. Uh, again, we have a banking experience staff that actually looks at their, you know, sc credit scores, looks at their front end ratios or back end ratios and underwrites them almost like we would as a originator, except we're able to, you know, we're able to uh, be a little bit lenient here and there. So, um, yeah, that's that's kind of how our process works. Let's let's use your example. You know, I think you you threw out the term, you know, the HELOC was a hundred thousand dollars you bought it for seven and then you you know magically they come up with thirty five thousand to pay it off let's yeah. use that and those numbers for an example okay you buy this you know non-performing second junior lien you know at, at uh seven thousand dollars when you uh, immediately approach them are you asking them to pay down the hundred thousand dollars or you come to them and say hey you know we're willing to take a significant discount on this we don't get into the specifics of what we're willing to take until we get some information from them. You know, I mean, you don't want to be, you never want to play the first card. There are right. some situations where, look, we paid, you know, a thousand dollars for this loan. We really don't want to go through the brain damage of legal or even tie up a lot of staff time. So in those cases, we might say, you know, we would, we could settle this thing very, uh, you know, very cheaply. What, you know, what kind of liquid, you know, assets do you have available? Like, let's just say in, in the case of a seven, uh, well, we'll go to that seven, uh, we wouldn't really do that in the case of a $100,000 balance, but say it's a $20,000 balance and we bought it for, you know, 2000. We, we might throw a number out initially and say, well, what are you able to come up with? I mean, we don't really need to collect the whole $20,000. If you can make a good faith, you know, make a sincere effort to, you know, to put a reasonable offer on the table. And if they come back and say, $5,000, we might say, you know, the number we had in mind was 5,300. And if you can get it into our account by the end of next week, we'll call it good. We'll send you back your original note stamp paid and we'll release the lien on the property. That happens gotcha. sometimes. But we find that we do better if we actually go through the process of collecting their financial information, because what's happening is we're, we're engaging a dialogue with them through this process and we're getting to know, you know, there's a, there's a human component that's we're getting to know the person, what their story is. In some cases, people have like a, just a, a, a really, a truly tragic story. And, you know, we want to be able to help, you know, and a lot of times we, we're, we're able to, I think, do better for them than they, what they expected. In other cases, we've got people that are just, you look at their credit, credit report, you look at their bankruptcy history, which is public knowledge, public information, accessible, right. 
And you, you see, these people have been serial bankruptcy filers and probably have never paid a debt in their life. We're just going straight for the property. And you look, if you want to settle this thing, make us an offer. And then the ball's in their court. So there is a little bit of, there's, there's subjectivity to it. We don't treat every file exactly the same, but we start kind of the same process on each one. Let's, let's talk about the, the opportunities where you actually get them start to making monthly payments to you right. and you get it performing again. Right. Is your intention to then turn around and sell that note because it's now performing? Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a whole other world of, uh, of note buyers that are just, they're just buying cash flows. And, and we actually have that side of our business too. We actually started in the defaulted space and then we realized, wow, there's a lot of really good pay. Cause once you start talking to people in the paper world, you realize people are buying and selling cash flows all the time too. So uh, we've actually built quite a nice business on the performing side and uh, we build into that model. We, we, we factor in, uh, you know, the ability to absorb a, you know, 25 to 30% default rate and still be able to pay our, our investors their preferred return. And I'm telling you, even through this COVID thing, we've never gotten anywhere near that kind of a delinquency or default rate. We're, in fact, I, it barely blipped during COVID. I'm really kind of shocked how few people actually reached out to us and said, hey, we need help. And there's been a handful and we've, we're helping them. We're, we're doing a forbearance uh, for them. But, uh, you know, it's, it's been great. So, uh, so yeah, there, when you create a cash flow that's secured by property, you know, based, depending on how much equity there is above our position, you know, that, that's valuable. You know, that's, that's valuable. Uh, that's a right. valuable assets, cash flowing assets. So, you know, real quick, I'll touch base on the COVID side of things. Um, you know, we have, we have quite a few notes that we've created just, you know, owner financing properties ourselves. We have right. quite a few rental properties. Um, we only had one tenant ask for one month of wow. just forgiveness. And they came to us with a very valid reason. They said, look, yeah. hey, we were significantly impacted. The wife can't work. The husband can't work. Our income has stopped. We're going to figure it out over the course of the next 30 days. They did. They paid us on the first of the next month. We gave them that month for free, but nobody else, all of our notes paid on time. Uh, and so, you know, I don't know if that's just blind luck or, hey, we, we did you know some what? really good underwriting at, at the beginning or, or whatever it was, but it, it worked out well for us. You know what? I, I've talked to a handful of people, probably 15, maybe 20 uh, in our in our related worlds, either in the note world or in the, the in, in, you know, real estate hard asset world. And as well as reading publications and you probably get some of the same, you know, newsletters and emails. And it's like, this is pretty much what, what we're hearing across the board. And uh, you know what I think that says? I mean, we live in a great country and the pe people are great people in this country. And if you just, if you get all your information, if you think watching the news is a snapshot of what America is like, I tell you what, uh, it, it's like watching the, 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 you know how we watch the highlight reels in sports? You see all the good yeah. It's like watching the low light reels. <laughs> watching all the fumbles, interceptions, dirty hits, bad stuff going on. And hey, we got some problems. There's no doubt we got some problems we need to fix in our country. But you know what? I, I, get, I just get so sick of the narrative that's being pumped out there, especially by a particular, you know, ideological wing of the country. And right. I mean, it's like, it's like, let's create crisis, panic and fear so that then we can be the ones to step in and solve the problem, you know, and it's, it just gets so old. I, there, I was reading that, I, I think it's, I can't remember the percentage, but the number of people that have actually 
applied for and been approved for forbearance agreements on their mortgage, a significant percentage of them haven't even taken it. They're saying, hey, I'm able to make my payment. I'm going to go ahead and make it. But right. it's nice to know I have this safety net. That I mean, that speaks volumes of the character of the people in our country. And there's always going to be, and we see them, and you do too, there's always going to be those few that uh, that know how to game the system. They're going to be in perpetual victim mentality, uh, or they're going to be, uh, yeah, just I don't want to work and I don't want to pay for stuff and I want I want it to be given to me. But by and large, I mean, I, this is this crisis has actually increased my hope for you know for the nation and and you know for the the goodness of people. There's there's a lot of great people. I agree, man. And, you know, I'll, I'll share a little. It's it's a story of mine, I guess. Um, my grandmother passed away in October, mm. and and I ended up. My dad had passed away in 2012. I ended up being an heir to her estate, and she owned a a property here in Mansfield, Texas. And I go, you know, once I go through the proceedings to become the administrator of her estate and all of that. I finally get the login to the mortgage for this property and I go to pay it. And it was so awkward because they're like, you're, you have already been approved for a loan modification due to COVID-19. And it was like walking me through this whole process. And I called the lender and I said, why are y'all doing this? Like, I didn't, I didn't request that this happened. And they were like, we're just doing it for all of our borrowers. We're just going to go ahead and, and approve everyone for a loan modification and, and, and give you, you know, if you want to take the loan modification, you can, you can take a forbearance if you want, or if you want to, you can just keep maintaining your normal payments. And to your point, there was a lot of people that might've been approved for forbearance, but said, I don't need it. I don't want it. I don't understand what you're saying. I just want to stay where I was, which is I'm making my payments and I see my principal balance going down and I see my insurance and taxes getting paid. Yeah. And uh, it, it was just, it was interesting to see how that played out. So, uh, but no, I, I agree, man, you know, the, the whole thing with all of this that's been going on, it, you know, when it first happened, it, I kept using the term, it was unprecedented times. Yeah. I think coming out of this, we're, we're still in a, a very awkward place as a, as a whole, as a country, as a nation. Um, the things with the riots and, and everything that's going on right now, it's, uh, it's very uncomfortable times. Yeah. Uh, but I think you, you are right. There is a narrative that's being told to us from the media that's probably making it a little bit more uncomfortable than in reality. Yeah, no, no doubt. So, uh, anyways, outside of that, back, back to the, the note world, uh, we'll, we'll get off the, the political side of things and, and everything that's going on in the world. Uh, you've talked about investors and and how they can work with you. Um, I'm sure there's people that have listened so far and they said, man, this sounds great. I'm never going to do anything like this, but there's an opportunity for them to be a small part of this. Uh, kind of share how people can come on and be a part of Aspen Funds and how they can help you guys do what y'all do. Well, first of all, yeah. So we we are, we are what we do is we launch and manage um, serial funds. So We'll raise, we'll raise money in a fund. We'll typically use an LLC structure. Um, we'll, put the, we'll put the notes in a trust and then we'll go out and we'll, we'll, we'll go to the market and buy. And then uh, even before we're done working those loans out, we'll, be, we'll have opened up another fund and we'll be raising money for that. On the income side, we're, we're always raising money and we're always buying notes. I, I need to say right up front, 
our funds are structured right now for accredited investors only. So um, we can't accept money for people that don't meet the qualifications for accredited investor. Um, so, you know, um, if people can Google that to see what, what that means. As far as getting involved in the business as a as a player, uh, by the way, that that is pure passive. That's true passive investing there. Right. Literally investing in our mortgage funds. We do all the acquiring, the working out, the distributions, the statements, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, and you basically just get your either your check monthly if you're in our income fund or you get your uh, percent of the profit if you're in our growth funds, which are the workout funds. And that typically takes, uh, you know, we'll start getting returns in one and a half years and usually by three years, we've gotten everything back out of that, you know, out of that particular batch or that fund plus the profit to share. So that's kind of in a nutshell. Um, but as far as getting involved in a in a in a more active role, like becoming a note buyer and seller or a note wholesaler, um, we don't do uh, you know, we're not we're not educators. We don't really do any kind of training. But I know the people that do. And I'd be happy to if, if people want to get some information uh, on getting involved and more involved in the note space. Just reach out through our website and leave a message specific to what what it is you're looking for. And I can turn you on to some trainers, coaches, mentors, as well as uh, some conferences. If we ever get live conferences going again, right. by the way, we I built the company other than, you know, meeting up with my partner, who's really been more on the capital side and the back office side of our business. But as far as all of our sourcing and our the vendors that we use, the, the, the network of attorneys, we have attorneys in every single state that we work with now. Uh, that's all been through conferences. I mean, yeah. literally all the, and it's, it's been a blast getting to know people. I feel like we're part of a kind of a community now. So people wanting to get involved in the business, I, there's online conferences too, there's virtual conferences, but when they, when the physical ones open back up again, they're a blast and you, you meet the right people, you meet the people that are actually doing deals. And, and of course there's always hucksters there too, that are just want to get their 997 home study course out to you. But for the most part, those people have kind of come and gone and it's real right. players in the space now. So. No, there's. I've said this time and time again. All of the the private capital that we've ever raised has come from masterminds, um, conferences, like you're talking about. There's nothing better than being belly to belly, breaking bread, you know, having a drink at night, and sure. and talking about making sure that your your visions align and you're on the same page. And 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 like you said at the beginning, what problem can I solve for you? A lot right. of times it's hey. I have uh, an acquisitions team and we're able to go out and acquire properties and you have money that's sitting there and not earning you anything in return. We can solve that problem for you. Um, I, I hope I'm not going to put you on the spot here because sometimes I get these one pagers and I ask a question off of it and I realize it was just an over eager assistant that wrote down a great question. I don't even know what you got. So shoot. I'll, I'll <laughs> okay. Well, let's hope this is a great question because it's, it's going to be my last one before we wrap up. But, uh, it says, what is the most important equity in real estate? Oh, I, I know, I know where I know where they're going with that one. <laughs> okay, so everybody understands what dollars, you know, monetary equity is. You know, if you have a three hundred thousand dollar property and the first mortgage is one fifty and the second mortgage is fifty, so but we only paid ten for it, there's substantial equity, dollars and cents equity above our position and way above our investment. And that's great. We love that. But where a lot of people uh, go dark in this business is we'll, like 
the example we talked about, the $7,000 purchase price for a, for a $100,000 balance, that would typically, that would not be a loan that has equity. Maybe our $7,000 is covered by equity, which is really not equity because that goes away. If we ever had to pursue the collateral, we're never going to get that money. But the most important, and I maybe not the most important, but there's another type of equity and it's called emotional equity. That's kind of what some folks that are the pioneers in the space have kind of termed it. And it basically says this, um, look, the homeowner wants to stay in their home. They've, they've, you know, they've, they bought the home, they've made improvements to it. They've raised their kids in the home. The kids go to the school down the street, all their friends, neighbors, they don't want the stigma of foreclosure. They don't want to have to file bankruptcy, but they will if they have to, to keep their home. Um, you know, and, and then in a lot of cases, again, because of the homes that were, most of our loans are secured by pretty much bread and butter, you know, working class, you know, workforce housing. They're, they're people that work and that care about home. They, uh, you know, in today's interest rate market, they, they really can't rent the same house in a lot of cases for less than what they're paying in the mortgage. So they're going to figure out a way to make the mortgage payment. Right. So that, that's, that's what I call emotional equity. Um, you know, they're just, they're, people don't wake up in the morning, you know, the tip, the typical family structure, you know, they don't wake up in the morning and Hey, honey, look at this. I just looked at Zillow and our equity went down. We've only got, you know, $4,000 of equity in our property. Maybe, maybe we should sell. They're, they're not, they're not thinking like that. It's not right. their portfolio. You know, they're, uh, they're happy that they're working, they're making their payment and uh, they're not going anywhere unless they have to. So that's I think, I think almost everybody on here that's ever tried to buy a house it, through like mass cold calling, text messaging, direct mail, whatever, understands exactly what you're talking about. Because there's so many times you reach out to a seller and you say, what would you want for your house? And a lot of times they say, I don't know, I, I need to talk to a realtor about that or, or I need to look it up. It's not because they're, they're trying to hold out on you because there's some great negotiator. A right. lot of times it's because they really don't know. Uh, so it's so a very great point there. Um, real quick, I'm going to, I'm going to do a sign off and then I'll ask you for your final thoughts before we wrap this up. Uh, guys, uh, thank you so much for, for tuning in this week. Again, like I always like to say, if you're listening on iTunes, make sure you give us a five-star rating. Uh, if you want to give us less than five stars, don't give it to me, give it to someone else. I only accept five-star ratings. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure you give us a thumbs up. Make sure you hit the subscribe button. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for all the wisdom that you brought. A topic that uh, is is not talked about often enough, but it's a it's a beautiful thing. Uh, final thoughts before we wrap this up. Yeah, my final thoughts and encouragement to folks would be to uh, never focus on the problems. You, you'll always find what you're looking for. And right now there's opportunity everywhere. Look for the opportunity and not just an opportunity to get ahead personally, but an opportunity to help somebody else, which usually those run in parallel. If you're helping somebody else in a legitimate way, you're going to get you're going to get compensated for it. So whenever there's a setback or a crisis, view it as an opportunity to improve your game and improve your reach and improve your service to others. And uh, you'll be fine. We're all going to be just fine coming through this thing. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jim. All right, guys, that's our episode for this week. And we'll see you all next week. See you. Thanks, RJ. 
Thanks so much for listening to the Titanium Vault with your host, RJ Bates III. For more info and to stay up to date, visit www.podcast.thetitaniumvault.com and on facebook.com slash thetitaniumvault. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review, and we'll catch you next time on the Titanium Vault.